So if you've been away for a few weeks or you're new to the church, you've probably worked out that we're in the middle of studying Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the book of Romans. And last week we saw that if we have put our faith in Jesus, even though we still struggle with the sin in our lives, uh, we are assured of victory. Paul says that we are more than conquerors. Sin no longer has mastery over us. We are undergoing a process of being changed and transformed so that over time, we become more like Jesus. It's a process that will last our whole lives and it will lead to us being made perfect in the new creation when God makes good this world. And this is such a sure thing that Paul speaks about it as if it's already happened. What's more, we are told that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. When a person belongs to God's family, They belong to God's family forever. But this raises a very important question to do with the nation of Israel. Didn't God choose this nation from among the nations to be his people? Is Israel not God's family? Why then do the majority of Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah? Could it be that the Jews have rejected Jesus because God has rejected them? It's a very worrying proposition. After all, if God could reject his chosen people, what's the stopping from rejecting us? Well, this is one of the questions that Paul seeks to address, and he gives a short answer in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Now, to understand how Paul reaches this conclusion, we need to start at the beginning of chapter 9. And one of the first things that Paul says is this. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is deeply troubled about the fate of his fellow Jews because the majority had failed to recognize Jesus as their Messiah and they were heading for disaster. And it was so tragic because God had been working in and through Israel all along to fulfill his purposes in the world. He'd revealed himself to Israel in such a vivid and powerful way. As Paul says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. Imagine a little boy standing on a riverbank and he's watching his siblings paddle down the river in a canoe that's loaded up with all the family heirlooms. And they've missed the junction in the river where they should have veered off to get to the family home. And now they're paddling towards a cliff, a huge waterfall that crashes down on the rocks below. And the little boy shouts to his siblings. He's trying to warn them. He's trying to get their attention. But they continue to ignore him. They continue to paddle towards the danger. Well, if you can imagine the kind of desperation and anguish that that little boy might feel, then I think you can imagine how Paul felt. It's a terrible situation. But what does it say about God? Does it mean that that God's word has failed? God made promises to the Jews. Those promises are fulfilled in and through Jesus. But the Jews, for the most part, don't want Jesus. Does that somehow derail God's plan? Not at all. When we look closer, we see that a person does not belong to Israel because of their human descent, but because of God's choice. 
And it was ever the case in the book of Genesis. We have the stories of the patriarchs, the founding fathers of Israel. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the father of Israel, and Ishmael was the father of the Arab nations. You might say, oh, but Ishmael's mother was Egyptian, and that's why they had this separation between the two families, the two people groups. But Isaac's sons were Jacob and Esau. They were twins. They had the same father and mother. Jacob himself became known as Israel, as did his descendants. On the other hand, Esau's descendants became known as the Edomites, a completely different people group. So you can see that being part of Israel is not simply a matter of lineage. It actually has to do with God's choice. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. We can't get away from the fact that God chooses people for inclusion in his family. And this brings us to the doctrine of election. Now, I came very close to talking about election a couple of times last year, and I think on each occasion I said, well, we're not going to open that can of worms today. Uh, Well, today is a day when we have to open that can of worms, Uh, but we're going to try and keep it fairly straightforward. In Romans 8, 29 to 30, Paul says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. If you know and love Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, it is because God marked you as his own since before the beginning of time. You were predestined for inclusion in God's family. It was always going to happen. This is wonderfully comforting and reassuring. I don't think that anything could give us a greater sense of security. But it also throws up some very difficult questions. Three in particular that I want to consider today. Who, what, why? Who did Jesus die for? What choice did I have in all this? And why do we need to evangelize? Why do we need to tell people about Jesus? So firstly, who? Who did Jesus die for? If those who put their faith in Jesus, true Christians, have been chosen, does that mean that there are some that have not been chosen? Yes, it does mean that. Now, there are some who would argue, and this is what's known as the Arminian position, uh, that God only chose those who he foreknew would choose him. And that is a distinct possibility. Uh, By the way, we don't have to be too dogmatic about all of this. Uh, As I was uh, explaining to our hub group the other week, within the Christian faith, there are closed-hand issues and there are open-hand issues. Closed-hand issues are the things that all Christians everywhere ought to agree on. These are things like the divinity of Christ, that Jesus died for our sin, uh, the, uh, the Trinitarian nature of God, and so on. Uh, these teachings are of central importance to the Christian faith. We cannot depart from them without departing from Christianity. But then we have uh, open-hand issues, and these are the things about which there can be legitimate disagreement among Christians. Things like the question of infant baptism, do we baptize infants or not? And perhaps the doctrine of election and what it means precisely. Not all Christians agree on this. Uh, but I think Scripture makes it very clear that some are chosen and others are not. 
Now, to many of us, that sounds rather unfair and arbitrary, and we're going to come to that. But who did Jesus die for? Did he only die for those whom God chose? No. The New Testament makes it equally clear that Jesus died for everyone. Titus 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Salvation is an open door that stands before the whole of humanity. Uh, A person enters that door when they put their faith in Jesus. And that means that Jesus' death was sufficient to save everyone, but only efficient to save those who repent of their sin and put their trust in him. Imagine a boat sank somewhere off the Gold Coast and you've got 50 people bobbing around in the water far out to sea and the Coast Guard is alerted and they uh, react immediately and they head out with a boat that is capable of carrying 200 passengers. But when they get to the scene, they find that most of the people in the water are actually swimming away from their boat. And they're not just swimming along the surface of the water, they're swimming down towards the depth of the ocean. Well, in that case... The boat was sufficient to save everyone. There's 50 people in the water. The boat can carry 200 people. It's sufficient for everyone. But in the end, it's only efficient to save those who turn towards the boat. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but if God has already chosen us, then we don't really get a say in the matter. And that brings us to our next question. What choice did I, what choice did we have in all this? And the answer is, we all have a choice. God is not some kind of celestial puppet master who's pulling these strings, but not those. Human beings have a real capacity to say either yes or no to God. You remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, he said these words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings But you were not willing. You were not willing. So it is possible for us to say no to God and for God to honor that no. But this is where people get into a terrible muddle. They say, well, either God chose me or I chose God. And if God chose me, then I can't in the truest sense of chosen God. But it seems to me that scripture teaches both of these things. God is sovereign. And he chooses who he will choose. And equally, human beings have free will. We do, in a very real sense, have the capacity to say yes or no to God. Now, if you're listening to this thinking, oh my goodness, have I been chosen? It's very simple. Put your faith in Jesus and you'll know that you have been. On the other hand, it could be that someone hears the, uh, the gospel, uh, hears the, the good news of Jesus, and they say, what a load of old rubbish. And if that person is still saying that on their deathbed, it might be a fairly strong indication that they've not been chosen or elected. And if that were the case, and none of us can ever know, I'm not presuming to know who's been saved and who hasn't, but if that were the case, it is also because that person has willfully rejected God. When it comes to election, we need to hold God's sovereignty and human free will side by side. I guess you could call it the ultimate paradox. God elects us, and yet salvation is freely available to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. 
It's hard to imagine how those two fit, things fit together, but somehow they do. The how of these deep things is often impossible for us to know. How did God speak the universe into being? Do you know? I don't know. I only know that God spoke the universe into being. How is it that God predestined us to salvation and yet we still have free will? I don't know. But the Bible tells us that this is the case. We shouldn't adopt an either-or approach simply because our limited minds can't integrate the two things intellectually. We need to hold the tension between God's sovereign choice and humanity's free will. Now, if you're thinking, yeah, but it still sounds a bit unfair, it may be because you're focusing exclusively on God's sovereign choice without fully grasping that we have a genuine capacity to either embrace or reject Jesus. And it might be added that no one deserves to be saved. This is not a right that any of us have. We don't deserve salvation. The fact that anyone is saved at all is a pure act of grace on God's part. But one thing's for sure, when we meet God face to face, we will find that he is infinitely more loving and gracious and just and fair than any of us were able to comprehend or even imagine in this life. And we must keep sight of that. God is loving and God is just. So one of the pitfalls or focusing exclusively on God's sovereign free will without balancing that with human free will is that we can slip into fatalism. That's when we see everything as inevitable. We can't change anything. It's just going to happen. Which brings us to the last of our three questions. Why? Why do we need to evangelize? Someone might say, well, if God has predestined people to be saved then what's the point of evangelism? Surely it's a done deal. If my neighbor is among the elect, if she uh, uh, is one of the people whom God has chosen, uh, then she'll be saved whether or not I tell her about Jesus. So what's the point? But we ought to remember God's modus operandi, the way that God works in the world. It seems that for the most part, God chooses to work through ordinary people like you and me. So it could be that God has chosen you to lead your neighbor to faith. And actually, Paul addresses this question in chapter 10. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Christians clearly have a part to play in the execution of God's sovereign plan. Paul doesn't leave us any room to descend into fatalism. Our actions make a difference on the cosmic stage, if you like. Equally, no one can look at their life and say, my life is a total mess. God obviously hasn't chosen me. No human being has any evidence that they have not been chosen or elected by God. We simply cannot know that. So here's the bottom line. Anyone, anyone can choose Jesus. Everyone who is chosen will choose Jesus. And everyone who chooses Jesus has been chosen. That is election in a nutshell. 
Why do we need to understand election? Well, because we are made right with God by faith in Jesus. And the Jews have, by and large, rejected Jesus. But if God chooses those who belong to him, shouldn't the Jews, God's chosen people, have accepted Jesus as their Messiah? And this is what Paul is addressing in these chapters. And he says, but God has not rejected his people. How do we know this? Because God's chosen people are not chosen on the basis of their national identity. You see, there are, in effect, two Israels. There is national Israel, and there is true Israel. National Israel is the, polit- uh, the, the national and political entity that we know as Israel. They have a flag and a prime minister and a geographical country, and generally speaking, if you're born to Israeli parents, then you are part of the nation of Israel. But then there is true Israel, and true Israel is made up of all those people who have been elected or chosen by God, or to put it another way, all those people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Did God reject his people? By no means. Paul was as Jewish as they come. All the first Christians were Jewish, and many, many Jews have converted to Christianity, and that is still happening today. When Paul went to a new town or a city, the first place he went to was the synagogue to preach the good news to the Jews. And if they rejected his message, he would then take the gospel to the Gentiles. And in this way, uh, some Jews converted to Christianity and many Gentiles converted to Christianity. And, And so true Israel is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Did God reject his people? No. But most of, the, most of the Jews rejected Jesus and so excluded themselves. And so finally we come to this image of the olive tree. Paul uses this wonderful image of a cultivated olive tree to represent the people of God, true Israel. Now when this olive tree was growing, uh, true Israel, that's everyone included in the promise, and national Israel were more or less the same thing. Now, there are examples of Gentiles who were included through assimilation into the nation, and we know that uh, it was possible for uh, Jews to be cut off from the community. But uh, basically, national Israel and true Israel were the same. All that changed with Jesus. All that changed with Jesus. The Jews who refused to believe in Jesus were like those branches that Paul says were broken off. And the Gentiles... The non-Jews that put their faith in Jesus were like the branches being grafted into the olive tree, and so it is today. Think of the implications of this. We have been grafted in to this olive tree, uh, which is actually a family tree, God's family tree. So when we read the Old Testament, we're not reading about a group of people in the ancient Near East with whom we have absolutely no connection. There is an unbroken line from their story to our story. It is all part of the same story. When we read the Bible, we are in fact inquiring into our own family history. Not our biological family, but our spiritual family, our eternal family, God's family. If that doesn't bring the Bible alive for us, I'm not sure what will. Now, it seems that some of the Gentiles felt superior to the Jews because they had taken their place in the olive tree. And Paul says, hang on a minute, there's no room for pride here. You only stand by faith. And unless your faith proves to be genuine, you will suffer the same fate as the rejected Jew, as those branches that have been broken off. 
And he then goes on to say this about the Jews who have been removed from the olive tree. He says, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. God has not rejected the Jews. It's just that inclusion in the olive tree is not based on being Jewish. It's based on putting one's faith in Jesus. And it's interesting to see the way that Israel has preserved or been preserved as a nation. Think about the nations that surrounded Israel that we read about in the Old Testament. The Edomites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, all these different people groups. You don't hear much about them today. They don't exist as nations. Israel still exists as a nation. And I believe that God wants to give them every opportunity to turn to Jesus and be grafted into the olive tree. As we've seen, there is a very real sense in which anyone who is part of the olive tree has been chosen. But none of us are chosen because of some special quality or attribute that we possess. If that were the case, our inclusion would be down to our works, and it is not. God's choice is a pure act of grace. It has nothing to, nothing to do with the works or the merits or the achievements or the accolades of the person that's been chosen. So what Paul is saying is that Jewish believers and Gentile believers are on a level footing. Now, it has to be said that rivalry between Jews and Gentiles is not a significant problem here at St. Andrews. So what is the relevance of all this? Well, firstly, we need to know that God has called us by name and made us his own. We are chosen. Nothing can be more reassuring than that. Secondly, we need to understand that we've not been chosen because we're special or better or more worthy than anyone else. We're chosen because God is gracious. That's it, pure and simple. Thirdly, we need to recognize that there's no such thing as a first-class believer and a second-class believer. You know, Jews looking down, or Jewish believers looking down at Gentile believers, Gentile believers looking down at Jewish believers, Christians from one denomination looking down at Christians from another denomination, someone who's been a Christian for a long time, feeling superior to the person who's only just come to faith. There can be none of that. As Christians, we are all in the same boat. There is no place in the church for pride, snobbery, one-upmanship, pretension, snootiness, airs and graces, or anything of that ilk. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We all belong to the same olive tree. Finally, we need to recognize that if we can be grafted into this olive tree, then anyone can be grafted in. We should never look at someone and write them off. We should never look at someone and think, oh, that's not the sort of person who would become a Christian. We are unlikely branches. We are the wild olive shoot that has been grafted in, sorry, to this tree. And that means that anyone can be grafted in. Your grumpy neighbor, actually my neighbors are lovely, but you may have a, a grumpy neighbor. They can be grafted in. Your uh, difficult or even tyrannical boss can be grafted in. As can the person who seems a little intimidating because they're covered in tattoos and piercing. Or, or your self-assured work colleague, whoever it might be. The question is, are you willing to speak to that person about Jesus? 
The wonderful thing about election, the fact that God has chosen people since before the beginning of time, is that there are people out there who will respond positively to the gospel. Guaranteed. They're just waiting for someone to tell them about Jesus. So why not be the person to take the gospel to, uh, to them? Well, let me finish with those words that we heard before from chapter 10. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Or sharing their faith with them? Or inviting them to church? Or Alpha? Or the marriage course? Or Hub? Or loving them as a neighbor? How are people going to know about Jesus if we're not living out our faith and proclaiming our faith? We need to do both. We need to live our lives in a distinctively Christian way. And we need to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. What could be more exciting than being part of the process whereby a person is grafted into the olive tree, grafted into God's eternal family? This is the mission of the church, to find and disciple those whom God has chosen and whom will choose God, who will choose Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what we've been looking at today is, is not easy. Uh, it's there plainly in the New Testament, but it's not easy for us to get our heads around us. We pray that you help us uh, to grow in our understanding, our knowledge, and our wisdom. Father, help us to hold the tension between your sovereign will and human free will. Father, we rejoice in the fact that anyone, anyone who puts their faith in your son Jesus will be saved, will be grafted into this olive tree. And we pray, Father, that we will see uh, clearly that we have a part to play in this, that we will have a sense of urgency, a sense of calling, a sense of excitement about sharing our faith with others. We pray, Father, that you give us ways to talk about our faith that actually win people over, not trying to win arguments, but trying to win people We pray, Father, that our lives will be such that they'll attract people's attention. They say, well, those people live differently. That community lives differently. Why why is that? We pray, Father, that we will live this out and we will proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.